Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Saul Kay here, super excited on this Friday for a local guest. And without further ado, let me go ahead and edify, introduce the man properly. David Habib, also known to his uh, close friends as Dudu, is a husband, father, Jew, Israeli, a funeral director, and a human being. Uh, he's worked at Sinai Memorial Chapel for 17 years in different positions, currently managing the South Bay and Peninsula operation and managing Eternal Home Cemetery in Colma. He is fluent in Hebrew, English, and French. He holds an MBA from the Notre Dame de Namur University and is active in several Jewish communities around the Bay Area. He loves his family, he loves to sing, and of course, spend time with friends. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. How are you? Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is an honor. Uh, my pleasure. So let's take it from the beginning. I want people to hear a little bit about where you were born, where you grew up, and anything else you want to say about that. So I was born in Israel to an Israeli father whose, whose parents were born in Libya and to a Latvian mother, a Jewish Latvian mother, of course. Her parents came from Latvia. met in Israel in Be'er Sheva and decided to get married. And then they moved to Natanya. They had me and my brothers. Uh, I lived in Israel until the age of 11, which uh, really embedded the Israeli within me. And, and at the age of 11, the family decided to move to Belgium for my father's uh, job, uh, all within the high-tech industry. We spent we spent quite a lot of time in Belgium, about six years. All my, my teen years happened in Belgium which in the first three years I didn't so much, but in the ne- but in the last three years where I grew up a little bit and was were more independent, I really loved Europe. Europe of back then is not the Europe of today, which was which was great. And during those six years in Belgium, my my Jewishness, okay, became stronger. Okay, I uh, were in Israel. I had a very strong Israeli feeling. All of a sudden in di- diaspora, I understood the meaning of being Jewish. At the age of 17, I, the family have decided to move to Palo Alto. I pleaded with my parents to maybe maybe they can put a pause on me. Instead of moving again, I can actually go back to Israel and, and finish my studies in Israel. My mom said, until the age of 18, you're with us. And then I came and I had my, my senior year in Palo Alto. It was a very challenging year altogether. But I did get to know Sophie. Uh, uh, which is the Israeli Boys and Girl Scouts, and more specifically, the tribe here, it's called Shevet Amifatz, the Bay Tribe. And, and through the Tzofim, I, I was able to meet Israeli friends, make a, make a serious group of friends that at the end uh, of that year, or maybe a year after, I don't recall, we decided to all go back to Israel. And with, with what, is called, it's an, what is called, it's a program called Garin, and we went back to be drafted in the Israeli military, and that's that's a lot. That's that's my zero to eighteen, so to speak. <laughs> okay, I love it. Okay, a couple things I want to circle back with. Sure. So sure. you said something really fascinating to me, and of course to our viewers, which is your 
sort of your Jewishness came out in the diaspora. Now, most Israelis that I've interviewed on this podcast, they grew up in Israel. There's this kind of concept of secular Israelis, right? Which is, I don't know mm-hmm. if that's, that's a term that you resonate with or not, but it's, you're in Israel. You don't have to do anything to be Jewish. You just, you're here. Right. That's it. Exactly. And then right. you, you leave and you're kicked out of the nest, as I say, and it's, wait, I need to self-define as a Jew outside of Israel. So can you talk a little bit about that? What did that feel like and what were some things that you did or felt during that time yeah like you said you know um when you are when you're in israel you are uh, a secular israeli but even within secular israelis there is there is the completely secular israeli who doesn't want to hear about uh synagogue and all that and then there is the other extreme if we can call it that way the traditional secular right the traditional secular who does go on shabbat to to the synagogue who, who does do all the celebrate all the holidays in in a more in-depth manner and that, and that is what, ha- what that's what's happening in my family's house so it, it was very normal when we lived in Israel we all went to my grandparents house on Shabbat where the kiddush we went to the synagogue but again we were not it wasn't anything special every everybody did many people did that let's put it that way okay coming to Belgium all of a sudden we were uh, introduced into into a Jewish school in, in, in Belgium, and all the time, all of a sudden, you're going to school, and together with you is the embassy, the Israel embassy kids, and all of a sudden, there is three police officers outside with an Uzi outside of the of the shul, right? And then there is a bodyguard or one guard on the roof with a rifle. So you understand that something is different here, and all of it is just because you're Jewish. Okay, this is the difference, right? And then uh, going to the synagogue. So, so where on Shabbat, for example, in Israel or, or, or Friday night, you can see that things are calming down, uh, less drivers, everybody wears white. It's that beautiful sensation of, of receive, receiving the Shabbat. And all of a sudden, you're in a different place. And yes, there is a synagogue and they will open their doors for you. But until you get to that synagogue, all that sensation of receiving the Shabbat is not there, okay? And slowly you start to understand the difference, the difference or the, the importance of the Jewish custom, the Jewish halacha, and the Jewish tradition altogether. That, and of course, and of course, unfortunately, as, Jew, as Jews, Jews and Israelis, we we felt not once the anti-Semitism, not so much in the United States back in the days, okay, but but very much so in Belgium. By Belgians, meaning by by like native Belgians. As of, as of today, it will be completely different, both in the United States and in Europe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And just a side question to that. Did you, were you bar mitzvah in Israel or in Belgium? And- That's a great question. So I studied for my bar mitzvah in Belgium, but the bar mitzvah took place in Israel. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Yeah. And then another question around that is, I've seen you in Ashkenazic's shuls and also Sephardic. So what type of community were you most associated with in Belgium? Oh, okay. So same thing with the United States, both communities. There were, were there were two shuls in, okay. in, in Belgium. One of them a little bit were further away from the home, which was a Sephardic one. So from time to time we went there and the closer one was Ashkenazi. We felt very comfortable in both, in both shuls. Amazing. And was that similar in Israel? Because I know sometimes it's it, the worlds are separate. No, in Israel it was very clear. We're going to my grandfather's uh, synagogue, which is a Sephardic shul, like a, like about, I don't know, 2,000 people. It, it was huge. It was big. Amazing. Okay. Yeah, we can talk a little bit more about how that plays out in, in the United States as well, the differences, because it's fascinating. And I think people know less about the Sephardic world, certainly in, in the United States. Okay. So the Belgians, you'd say you experienced, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism later as well, but so then you went and you enlisted 
That's right. That's right. That, it's going to catch up. Sure. So what happened is that we, it's a group of 30, about 30 kids of that their parents actually moved to the United States, meaning it's, there's a term called right? They, they went away from Israel and they established their life in the United States and in Canada. So 30, 30 kids where their parents did that met three times in New Jersey, okay, just to get the tools of understanding what is it Garin Sabah and what is it to be drafted in the Israeli army. So we got all the tools that we needed. And, and that next summer, okay, meaning we, we we left the United States in June and we were adopted by a kibbutz, okay? The kibbutz is called Ashdot Yaakov Ichud, which is in the northern part of Israel by the Tzemach intersection, which is by the Kinneret. So from June till November, okay, which is close to six months, okay, we were incorporated back into the Israeli lifestyle and, and we didn't have to pay for our rent, but we did work in the kibbutz, okay? And for about six months, I worked in, in Hebrew, it's called Gadid, and, and, the, and the explanation to that is, is I worked in the dates department. So we climbed up those palm trees, we wow. took down we took down dates with a machete, machete, filled the containers with dates, ate half of them. And so it was, it was a lot of fun. You wake up at five o'clock in the morning because it's really hot in that area during the summer. So you wake up at five o'clock in the morning, you start working at nine o'clock, you stop, you go do a breakfast in the Cheder Ochel, right? In the, where everybody is. Yeah. Yeah. Mass hall. And then, and then you go back for another three hours. You work until noon. At noon, you get a, a popsicle and you go to sleep. That's what it is. And then November came, and in November we were enlisted. I had the privilege and the honor to serve in the uh, armory forces, which is the tanks, basically, uh, in Unit 188, also called Barak, which is one of the... Back then it was one of the newer tanks, the Merkava Merkava tank. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it it was a strong feeling of... Doing something that I would not be able to do if I would have, for example, would decided to go to college. It was, it was very clear to me that if I would take the college path, which is a great path, I don't want to, right? I, I want to be very clear about that, okay? But if I would have done that, I would not come back and, and enlist in the military. And what I did in the army in those three years is something that I would never do again, and I will not be able to do it anywhere, okay? Got it. So you're saying you don't regret that decision. That's your way of... No, I don't regret the decision. Even though the experience itself is not necessarily a happy experience. I I had tough moments. I had challenging moments. Being a lone soldier in Israel is not the fun, the funnest experience. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so for people listening, that's a term that's thrown out a lot. Not everyone knows what that actually means, lone soldier, which what that means to me is you don't have any family there. But is there more to it than that? Or is that essentially what that means? So a lone soldier is basically you do not have a warm house to go back to with your immediate family, your parents and your brothers. So Israel... The, the, the amazing state of Israel is trying to find an alternative. But the alternative is the, the being adopted by the kibbutz. And in the kibbutz itself, they'll find you an adopted family, okay? And, and, you, and you come home and you see them. And sometimes you get along with your adopted family. And sometimes you're not very close to them. But at least there is a big, there is a big, uh, which they're trying. Everybody is, is really trying. <clears throat> but the bigger thing is that lone soldiers usually come back to where they are. They come back to, to, to the kibbutz. And they go into their room, there is nobody there. This is not a fun moment. 
And at times, other friends are also leaving for the weekend or coming back for the weekend. So you have your group of friends. But but yeah, so basically, a lone soldier is a, is a soldier that doesn't have his immediate family next to him. And it could be that the immediate family, it could be that the immediate family is in, in, another, in another country, or it could be that the immediate family doesn't get along with their sibling or with their son or something like that. These are... Got it. Yeah. But again, but both the army and the people of Israel are cherishing and are respecting very much lone soldiers, like all the other soldiers. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting. It is. It happens to be Veterans Day here in America on the day That's that right. we are recording this. How does that feel? As a, You're obviously a veteran of, of the Israeli Defense Forces, but how does it feel for Veterans Day here in America for you? What's your connection to it, if anything? I have a strong... I have a... I feel strongly about that day. I think that, I, let's put it that way, I don't know enough. I don't know enough, of, but, but from what I know or what I see, I don't think, I'm not sure if the United States is doing enough to commemorate or to remember that day of veterans. But as a funeral director, as a funeral director, we take veterans very seriously and we make sure that when families are asking for it, we're draping a flag over the casket and we are even asking the family if they would like a military honors. We arrange for that as well. I take it very seriously, and I thank all our veterans if I can do that. Absolutely, yes. They, yeah. Without, if not for them, we wouldn't be able to be having this conversation here. So this is a good transition. So let's talk about how did you get into the world of being a funeral director, and and why. When I was born, my mom said, "I want you." No, that's not how it happened. <laughs> After my military service, I stayed in Israel for several years and I opened my own business and we closed it at some point and all that. And, and then a friend of mine and me, we decided to, we had our experience in Israel, let's go back to our families in the United States and start our, our studies, our education. So I got my BA and then I got my MBA and I worked in the financial world a little bit. My, I have an MBA, but really the emphasis is finance. So I had an opportunity to work for a little bit for uh, two banks. And, and it was an experience that I not necessarily enjoyed. I, I, didn't, bring, didn't, I didn't bring the best of myself or, the, or my full capacity, let's put it that way. So I uh, went to look for something within the community. I had a, an opportunity to work for one of the synagogues back in San Jose. And then they, and then that synagogue, there was a lady there who told me, listen, there is an opening at Sinai Memorial Chapel. I was fairly young. I was 24 or 25. And she told me there is an opening at Sinai Memorial Chapel as an assistant to a funeral director. I said, okay, let's check it out. So I went for an interview. Uh, the pay was a little bit more than what I got at the synagogue. I said, okay, let's start it. I'm probably going to do it for a year or two until I establish myself somewhere else. I uh, got into this. And slowly and surely, I learned the work of a funeral director, and I understood uh, the connection that the funeral directors have to the community, okay? And, and I really liked what I see, and I, I decided to go ahead and become a funeral director, meaning having a state license, et cetera, et cetera. While doing the job itself, I really fell in love with the mission that this job is coming with. And, and to me, by now, this is not so much of a job per se. It's more like a community mission or my, my, my mission for life. Yeah, I, would say that, I would say that I enjoyed very much studying what, what I studied. My, the finance, the emphasis in finance and the MBA and the marketing and all that. I really enjoyed studying it, okay? I'm using some of it even today, my managerial uh, my position here. 
but but what was missing is what was missing was the giving back to the community or the giving back to people that are in need you, you understand what i mean it wasn't rewarding at all sitting in front of a computer and looking at number and when I, when i can help people that are at the time of in tough times and when i can help people when they're in their tough times it it means a lot to me okay what have you learned about life from working so closely with death <laughs> that's a great question every minute counts every minute counts okay when you wake up in the morning doing the modani is not it should not it should not come automatically it should be every morning when we read it we should be fully in that prayer and then articulating those words in a very in, in a manner that we, we strongly believe in it okay because every morning when we open our eyes when I open my eyes and I'm able to come to And do the job but not only do the job giving a hug to my son giving a kiss to my wife it could be that there will be no tomorrow you know what I mean you know what I mean uh and and I'm and, and I'm and I've seen I've seen it from I in, in 17 years I had the opportunity to to speak for a, to, with a person two days ago and now whoa somebody called and said the gentleman that you just spoke was passed away and all of a sudden I'm like oh so that's what I'm saying every minute counts and When you meditate or when you think about life for a moment, do it seriously. Don't, don't just do it to do it. You know what I mean? 100% agree. Yeah, it's, it's, I think about death a lot, actually. Not in a morbid way, but just in a way that sharpens the contrast of life. Okay, how many Pesachs do we have left? How many Rosh Hashanah do we have left? And if you're in your family, yeah. it's counting. You, you may have less than you have already had. So it's very humbling and it really makes the moments count. So let's talk a little bit about your perspective on what's happening with the war in Israel right now. And both as a Israeli, obviously, and an, an American, you, you bring a unique blended perspective to the table. Um, one of my missions now, just with the last three weeks, is I want to give better information to In terms of historically why things are the way they are and what is actually happening and what the war is actually about okay so I'll just start with one specific question and we can go from there people think in popular media this is a war between Israel and Palestine which is actually in my opinion completely inaccurate this is not that at all this is Israel versus Hamas do you agree and if so what Or if not, then talk about that. Okay, if we're going to go specific, yes, I agree. The, the war is between Israel and Hamas. This is, that should be very specific, okay? If we're going to take the, the broader view of things, okay? It, it really is the Western world against radical Islam, okay? Because we, and I think that we saw it also with 9-11, and I'm not making the comparison. Both of them are tragic moments, but I really don't like the comparison. But 9-11 is what Israel has happened in 2001. And during 1994-95, Israel already have endured all those bus bombings, right? So bus bombings happened in Israel, okay? And all of a sudden, 2011, it happens in the United States. So I would not be surprised to see what happened in October 7 in Israel. All of a sudden, God forbid, happens in Detroit in about in about five years something along those lines I don't think it's a far-fetched vision okay uh, but if we're going if we're going specific that that yes it's Israel versus Hamas now the question is my question is who do we consider Hamas the 
definitely a broader topic. <laughs> I want to circle back to what you just said, which is also a, an extremely important point, which is mm -hmm. this is not just about land. This is a war over a value there, system, right? It's there is like, no land here. Right. Sorry, there, there is no land. There is no money. There is no overthrowing anybody, right? There, it's just terrorizing. Terrorism. And if, Hasva Shalom, this is not going to happen, but if Hamas was able to destroy Israel, which is the only center of democracy in the Middle East, then Europe is next, and then the United States is next. By their charter, there's nothing hidden about Hamas's agenda. People, people mm -hmm. say all kinds of funny things. Just go read their charter online. Completely. It's really important that people remember that, right? Because it's easy to get lost in the specific details. Anything else you want to say about that? I have a lot more to say, but I want you to talk more. No, I just wanted to say, and then I'm asking a question, right? It's a question that I ask, and you say it's an elaborate question, and the question that you're right. The question is, who is Hamas? Okay, who, yeah. Who is Hamas? Right? Yeah. I know how Hamas was founded by seven men in 1987, around December, etc. So then... Right, but, but then in 2005, Israel unilaterally moved back from, from Gaza, right? 2007, right. Hamas took the power of Gaza, now, okay, people have voted for Hamas. Okay, so just in case he said that too fast or you didn't understand the accent, 2005, Israel withdrew from Gaza and then elected, the Gazans elected, I think, the PLO. And then two years later, they elected Hamas. A good point to keep in mind is there have not been elections since then, right? That's Correct. Not, Correct. Not a democracy at all. Okay, I just wanted mm -hmm. to clarify that. Okay, carry on with that. So now we're so now that we're asking ourselves, okay, so in 2007, people in Gaza, okay, have voted Hamas. Okay, not too long ago, we're talking about um, six months ago, there was a poll, there was a poll in Gaza. What, who are you? Are you for Hamas or against Hamas? About 67 of them were for Hamas. Now, you can, one, say, one may say they're saying they're for Hamas because they're afraid of Hamas and all this. At the end of the day, the question is, who is a Hamasnik? Or who is a person that is promotes Hamas to do what they do? And I think that many people in Gaza who don't see themselves part of the Hamas organization are still in favor of Hamas. And that's a big problem. That's a big problem and, and complicated to identify. And I heard, I believe it was Rabbi Manus Friedman talking about how do you identify civilians in a conflict like this, right? It's very complicated, especially exactly. on the ground. But one of the ways potentially that one could do that is civilians. There's a every day at 10 o'clock, you have an opportunity to go through a corridor to, to disassociate yourself. Whether Hamas permits them to actually do that without shooting at them, that's a whole nother side issue, but that's a simplistic way. But, but, but I'm, I'm, coming and I'm, I'm coming and I'm asking, okay, we have the Hamas terrorists. We need to take them, I believe, that we need to take them one by one until the last one, okay? But the question is, the, the rest of the citizens and the civilians that are there, are they really against Hamas? Are they, they disagree with Hamas? I don't think they all of them do. Well, if you are watching this and you're on YouTube and, and you have a, a suggestion about that, or let us know in the comments, because I don't have that answer for sure. Okay, so let's fast forward. So Israel wipes out Hamas. Yeah. And then what do you see as the future of the Gaza region? What do you think happens next? Because people aren't talking about that at all. That's a great question. I believe that, that once Israel will decide to finish the war because it's Israel going to decide to finish the war and I don't think it's going to be ended anytime soon we have at least another I believe that we have at least another month to two months okay 
I believe that Israel will have to stay there for a little bit, you know, just to get uh, things uh, in order on the ground. And then I would think it will be beneficial both for Israel and for the Palestinian civilians to have an international force coming and really help them rebuild, help them establish whatever they need to establish. Yes, it is an Israeli problem, but Israel, it's not, it should not only be Israel's problem. Uh, the destruction of Hamas with the destruction of Gaza coming with it should not be only Israel's, the Israeli problem. So an international force should come in and govern that area for a little bit. And then after a while, maybe after a year, we should, intro- again, introduce another Palestinian power, maybe the PLO, maybe, I don't know, I'm not very good at those things, but uh, maybe something else that will, maybe the, the, the Palestinian Authority should come in and need to try to take over, even though I'm not a big supporter of the Palestinian authorities. Or- yeah, it's a tough question. Gaza left to their own, you know, elected PLO and then Hamas. So will history repeat itself? We don't know, but I think your your point is solid that it's not just Israel's responsibility. If, if the UN is providing aid, they mm-hmm. should also help with the restructuring of the governmental process. And hopefully, exactly. yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about that while we're on this topic? It's Israel entered into a war that they didn't plan, and they didn't they didn't want to get into. Israel will finish the war, and Israel will decide when to finish the war. It's an unfortunate situation on many levels, what, what has happened here. And but you know what? I'm Israel Chai, and we're here for we're here to stay for forever. Amen. Okay. So, so thing I, I would be curious to hear your take on. So this tragic thing happened on October 7th, and within days, barely even days, the world media turned this into. Israel is the bully within days. And that's no accident, from my opinion, in terms of the media campaign that's been going on for 30, 40 years to to paint Israel as the bully. That to me is really mind blowing to add to that. And yet they expect us to continue to provide electricity, food and water to the terrorists that just tried to kill us. How does one even explain or talk about that? Yeah, it's very tough. I mean, I told my many friends that I have, I told them on October 7th, what happened in October 7th, at the end of the day, and this is how, how we started this conversation about the war. At the end of the day, it's between us and Hamas. Okay. Hamas came in, they did whatever they did. The only entity that maybe will be able to forgive Hamas is God Almighty, and we will make that connection between Hamas and God. It's not that we'll take care of them, okay? However, we got about a week after, like you mentioned, we got slaughtered again. We got again, we got Israel and the Jewish people, and, and again, it's Israel, Israelis, and the Jewish people around the world. It's not only Israel, okay? We got slaughtered again by the media, by the colleges, by whatever what's happening, whatever is happening in Europe. And it's so tough, especially for people like you and I, so who who lives who live in the diaspora, and and, and Israel is important to us in our heart. And, and to go and to try, the only thing that we can do, and and I'm trying to do it with many friends of mine, is to advocate for Israel. To take the the, the there are people that that are very well educated, and they and they don't like Israel. Very well educated, don't like Israel. There is nothing I can do with them. But there is all those ignorant people, young students who just you know just yell things without understanding. These are the people that we need to grab and advocate for Israel, explain to them, because yes, me and you, we will always be ambassadors for Israel, but we need those nowadays ignorant people to be educated enough by us 
to go back to the world and explain, you know what? It's not like you're saying it is, and it's a little bit different. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, yeah. Tough. It's, a, it's a tough job. It's a tough job. I totally agree. Yeah. And we'll, let's use this platform to do it right now. So let's say we want to, you're talking to a college student, and uh, I do this quite often, being on campus these days, and you need to tell them five, 10 things that are useful to know about right now to just start them on the path of maybe thinking about this differently versus what the mainstream media is saying. What, what would you say if I was that person? Really, what they need to do is they, they need to go and educate themselves. They would need to go and 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 go back in, in history, back in time, and actually come up with an open mind, with an open mind to understand the history, to understand how we got... To, the, to that conflict that we are calling the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, in, ter- in terms of history, in, in terms of history, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is not that long, right? It's about like from 67 until nowadays. In terms of history, it's nothing. It's it's for it's 40 years. But how did we get to, how did we get to that war? Why is it? Look, I am not I'm not taking Israel is not 100 percent right in every decision that they made, but there is a clear understanding of who wants peace and who will not lay their weapons down and always want war. And this is what we need to explain those those students, and we need to show them facts, and we need to actually explain to them what Israel was able to do in the 75 years that Israel exists, as opposed to what happened in Gaza in the 20 years that Hamas has been there. All these are important things that people are like ignoring, are not seeing, they're blind to, and uh, and I'm very sorry for that. My personal philosophy is that all of us are in this war, whether you're Jewish or not, American, Israeli, whatever country, we are all in this war. It's really a battle, like we talked about in the beginning, of Western ethical values versus people that have life versus people that don't. Like the highest level of, in, in one particular version of Islam, jihad is like the highest level of killing yourself and to destroy the enemy. That is not a Jewish value. That's not it. Okay. This, these are fundamental differences and they affect everything that's happening. I think that's good. It's a good start to start with, okay, let's look at how long has the Palestinian conflict been going on, who in the region, and then providing people with resources as well. Every little bit counts and every little conversation counts. So your advice is definitely... Uh, and even if we're looking at October 7th for a second, just that's that day, October 7th, and we're, we're looking at all the atrocities that happened, Okay. You you can clearly tell those people that nothing has was was nothing that was done here was done by the name of religion because there is no any religion that talk about raping that talks about killing kids, burning, beheading, all those things. None of the big religions, Islam, Christianity, or Judaism, talks about this. So that right there should be some sort of a red flag to those people that are are supporting Hamas or something like that. You know what I mean? I got it. Okay, so let, let's move to America and the broader world and all the anti-Semitism happening. Yesterday, oh. 85 mm-hmm. years later of Kristallnacht. And yeah, thinking about that and how, to me, what is horrifying and mind-blowing is it's not like all of a sudden anti-Semitism just began last week, right? It was like this event somehow justified everyone being completely out in the open with it. What can we do as American Jews to protect ourselves or be aware or anything that you suggest or the things that are working for you in our community? So number one, I think you're right. This this event 
there was a bubble that was that we didn't know about or we, or we knew about, but it grew bigger than we even thought. And all of a sudden, that that event happened, and the bubble bursted, and a lot of ugliness came out of it with all the anti-Semitism around the world. Now, anti-Semitism around the world is one thing, but anti-Semitism at home, and I would call the United States home, and especially California, my home, and San Mateo County, very much my home, we're seeing it all over. It's, we cannot hide what we, we can do. Number one, what we can do is to stand strong for who we are and uh, and that we are not different or lower or higher than any other human being who, who lives in the United States, which means go to your to the congressman and, and go to your educational district and make sure that these things will be loud and clear when 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 a shul or when a shul have a, a synagogue, there is a swastika painted on their wall, okay? We want to see we want to see the law enforcement not only investigate it but actually go into depth and find the people that did that. Okay, when when you know in a school district there is there are, there are children who knows that another kid is is Jewish and they are saluting with like in the Nazi salute. Okay, there is a there there is an expectation from our educators, from the principal of school and from the district to do something about it. And us as Jews, we need to make sure that it's being done. So we need to go to all those meetings. We need to we need to write to all these important people. That's number one. Number two, physically being protected. I've seen it. I've seen it at school. I've seen it at, at our synagogue. Make sure to have somebody there that that will some sort of protection. Whether it's it's a police car, whether it's an armored guard, an armed guard outside of the synagogue, or something along those lines. We, we should be very proud that we're Jewish. We don't have to go ahead and yell it everywhere, okay? But we should not hide our Jewishness. Let's put that's my take. Hundred percent. If you you've heard this expression before, if you see something, say something, right? And this goes for all of our friends and people that support the state of Israel. If you see people acting in an anti-Semitic way in your neighborhood environment, you see something, say something, report it. People should be held accountable for that. Absolutely. And then I'm Increasing security around uh, Jewish schools and synagogues and JCCs and things like that is great. Lastly, you may have heard about this. Speaking of things happening in in California, there was a man, Paul Kessler, who was a Jewish American, I believe in his 60s, who was murdered at a rally. And I Mm -hmm. actually personally know the rabbi that had to go and ID the body a few days ago. He's on his way to Israel, Rabbi Mark Blazer. And I want to contrast this for a moment. Okay, so when George Floyd died, if you remember that, the entire country, yeah. as well they should have. It was a hor- horrendous no, racial killing, okay? As well Very as they should have. Paul Kessler, most people have no idea. It, it even happened. I want to say his name, his memory be for a blessing, and that we cannot let things like that go unspoken about. We cannot, we have to put it in the media's face. Because if people it's- in Congress are saying things like from the river to the sea and et cetera, what's being said in Congress, we have to, we cannot let those things slide by, right? This is something that we can do. It's easy to forward a post. It's easy. I'll have a list of resources below on this video, places where you can write to Congress about specific things that are happening. You can click links. It's very easy. And uh, I thank you for those things. One other easy question for you. Yeah. What does the Jewish world need now most and why? I strongly believe that the, the Jewish world needs to, to go back to its roots a little bit. Okay? Going back to its roots. We, roots means 
the land of Israel, roots mean Torah and Masim Tovim, um, like good, deed, good, good deeds, stuff like that. Community, okay, Hakel, that we, uh, we mentioned, gather as communities. We should lost all these lost, unaffiliated Jews, and we should bring them, we should bring them all together. And, and this is like a first step. Let's go back to our roots. Let, let's remember where we all came from. And then let's connect the, the diaspora Jews and the Israeli Jews. There is some sort of disconnect maybe between those two, two groups. And we do want to see them. See them do it. Let's, let's become stronger as people, as people. And again, it can mean many things. It can mean, as I said, build communities. It, go, it can mean do a little bit more of mitzvot. It can, it can mean that... We support Israel in so many ways, and I'm not only talking about money. Let's advocate for Israel. Let's make sure that everybody, that everybody within our community, have the arsenal, or that our kids, our kids have the the arsenal to answer tough questions when they're being asked at colleges and stuff like that. This is, I believe, this is one of the things that uh, Jews around the world and Israelis around the world need at this moment. Absolutely, I'll sum that up as. Achdut, returning to the source and arming us with knowledge. Also, I know that you set up a GoFundMe campaign. I think yeah. it's still running. I want to mention that. if It, it is still running. It is still running. Of course, it is. We, Yeah, this is great. So the GoFundMe that, that we created with Karen O and Karen O'Reese and Daphne Carfer, this is, it's a little bit specific. It's specific GoFundMe. Many of the GoFundMe's or many of the support that was sent to Israel were sent either to organizations or to kibbutzim, or to specific villages that, that that got hurt. We collected money, and there's even families that that are savvy enough on how to to come up with a GoFundMe and collect money for the tragedy tragedies that their loved one have suffered. The money will not bring back anybody, but it may, may help a little bit th- those families. But there are families. There's quite a lot of families who, who got hurt. Not only by the loss of life, there is burnt houses, there is people that are wounded and injured, and and even even not necessarily physically, also mentally and in, in your soul. So there's quite a lot of those families who don't know how to go to a GoFundMe or don't have the resource to understand how to collect money or don't have the people in the community that will help them. We are like looking for those specific families. And if anybody knows about those families, please approach me. And we just helped two two families already in Israel. One family, the mother, the parents were at the Nova Music Festival. The mother got murdered and the father got injured in the back and in his leg. And he's in surgeries right now. And they have three kids. So we went ahead and we sent them with the help of many people in our community. We sent about $2,500 just to, for the next, I don't know, it will help them for the next month or two. Okay, that's for them. There is another another family who their house got completely demolished and burnt. They needed help. We'll send them all. We sent them also an amount. And it's an open GoFundMe. You can put money in and we'll still keep on sending money. I love it. Thank you so much for that. I'll put a link below for that. It looks like we've raised almost uh, 10 grand so far. And thank mm-hmm. you for your support with that. It goes directly to the families, to helping them with needs right now. I want to thank you for your time. And I always want to end with a blessing that Hashem should bless you with clarity of of purpose and putting you in the right place at the right time in front of the right people that can hear a message that will help educate them and help create more understanding and build bridges between not only American Israelis, American Jews. We all need to come together and ach, dude, and I really appreciate you. And Man, you give to our community. I just want to say that I believe that your podcast is very important. Okay. I think you're doing it very, in a very nicely manner, very, uh, in a very light setting yet yet the message is super strong 
thank you for doing that. I love the, the work that you do other than that po podcast, and I will see you very soon. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family whom you think would be inspired by the content. And we will see you on our next episode.